listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 216. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the present and future of labor policy under a Biden administration. What do we know? What can we guess? And what do we have to fight for? We will cover all that and more. But first, the news. Before we dig into the news of this week, we are going to take a moment to remember Belabored's very first guest, way back in April of 2013, Karen Lewis, former president of the Chicago Teachers Union and its leader through that massive, world-changing 2012 strike, passed away last week. And we can truly say that without Karen, the labor movement and our work here would have been very, very different. She was an incredible woman a fierce and fearless leader, and no one, absolutely no one, cared more about Chicago's kids than she did. You can hear me getting choked up. She represented the best in the labor movement, and we wanted to remember her with a clip from that episode. So here's Karen Lewis talking to Josh and I back in 2013. The narrative that teachers don't care about children has been um, very interestingly woven. People kind of took it and, and ran with it. The only problem was it absolutely makes no sense. So I get up every morning to go deal with children and I don't like them or I don't care about them. I mean, it just... <laughs> so explain to me now how the billionaires who don't believe in public education don't care about black and brown children, don't send their own children to public schools, all of a sudden they care deeply about black and brown children as if they exist in some kind of vacuum. But part of the issue about gender is something that we don't ever bring up because it also makes people very uncomfortable, you know, because on one level there's still this sort of paternalistic I'd like to protect women thing. And on the other hand, let's cut them off at the knees. Let's put women out of work. Women who may actually be caring for their own children and families. So this is a really anti-family mentality. And it's also, uh, you know, the magical thinking as if children don't have their own parents that love them. They don't live in communities that have been destroyed by um, not having appropriate places for for the parents to work. So my question has always been, if you love black and brown children so much, why do you hate their parents? That was Karen Lewis, who we will all miss so very much. For years, we've been reporting on the various protests, strikes, and marches that workers have led in the Fight for 15 movement. But now it seems like a $15 hourly minimum wage is closer than ever to being passed in Congress, Democrats controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress. Yet the legislation to more than double the federal minimum wage, after many, many years of stagnation, still faces pretty stiff opposition, especially as some lawmakers push to include it in the upcoming stimulus bill. So workers have taken to the streets once again, this time going on a one-day strike in 15 cities across the country to reiterate why a $15 minimum wage is so crucial in the midst of widening income inequality, the growing precariousness of low-wage jobs, oh, and the global pandemic and the attendant economic crisis we're living through. 
I talked to Eric Winston, a cook at a Cracker Barrel in Durham, North Carolina, about why he was out protesting and why he wants Congress to know about his plight. My name is Eric Winston, and I'm a grill cook at Cracker Barrel in Durham, North Carolina. And um, I'm going on strike today to let companies like Cracker Barrel and McDonald's um, know that we know you can afford to pay us. Um, so we're demanding that you give us uh, $15 an hour. How much are you making now an hour? Uh, I'm making $13 an hour now. So how is it getting by on $13 an hour? Because, you know, someone might hear that and be like, well, you know, $15 um, isn't that much more than 13 Okay, I've been working in the restaurant business for 20 years. And I'm just making $13 an hour. Um, for 20 years experience, I should be paid well above $15 an hour. Um, and actually what $15 an hour would do for me, but do for all low-wage workers in a whole would change their life dramatically to where they can um, afford to live in these regentrified communities that's being regentrified. They can. Uh, um, they don't have to work two or three jobs. They can work one job, pay, uh, afford to pay their bills, uh, afford uh, necessities in life without having to choose which necessity to uh, fulfill. Uh, actually, I work two jobs. Yeah, um, Cracker Bar and Roof Chris. Actually, I work two full-time jobs, and I support four children. Uh, an elderly mother, which is 71, who has um, level four kidney disease, diabetes, um, is on dialysis, and I, I have to help with her medicines every month. I have to pay rent. I have to pay child support. I have to buy clothes. I haven't even mentioned food yet. Mind you, I don't get food stamps. They say I make too much money. It's just uh, just asking for an uh, equal playing field. It's, that's what we're demanding. We don't want a little stimulus package. We don't want that. We pay us. You want real COVID relief? Raise the minimum wage of $15. Not a, we don't want a one-time check because that's not going to do nothing. We'll put us right back in the same predicament. Congress is uh, considering whether to uh, raise the nationwide minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um there's considerable opposition to that initiative, but what would you like people in Congress to recognize about what's going on in your community right now? I just want to let Congress know that um, while you guys, policymakers or whatever, sitting up in your cushy offices in your air-conditioned buildings, riding in your car services, your food. There's people out here literally struggling, not not knowing a how they're gonna pay their rent from from month to month. B how they're gonna pay their light bill from month to month. And C or how they're gonna feed their families from month to month. While you sitting up here arguing a, 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 about a bill that really is a moot point if you don't raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. If you really want to help Americans get out of this pandemic. Pay them. 
a decent wage so they can go out here with and spend their money in their own communities. Have you gotten any of the stimulus money or any of the help that they are uh, that they've kind of handed down from time to time from? Oh, I haven't got none of that. I haven't got one stimulus payment. Period. I haven't got one. Jeez, and you, and you've been working throughout this whole since. Uh... I've been working since the pandemic started. I've, I haven't stopped working. What does your employer think about you going on strike? Have you faced any repercussions or? Um, I, and, you know, actually at my job, um, no, I haven't. Um, because they pretty well know where I stand. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an excellent employee. Like I do my job and I do it well. And so uh, one thing I know uh, people that is, is is respected is that um, I have dignity in my job. You're going to respect my job because without me, you and your business would not run. Yeah. I mean, without you, there'd be no food. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, and us as essential workers, we've been holding it down for this country during this pandemic. So you want to thank me? You want to say how much it is? I don't want your thanks. I don't want a congratulations. I don't want a good job. Put them, put that money on my on my paycheck, man. That's a that's the thank you I want to see. I don't want you to smile on my face. I don't even want to see your face. Just pay me. That's that's the thank you I want. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, I just wanted to add that uh, where the fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage is a great thing, but it's a moot point without union rights. And we're aiming to make all jobs union jobs. So we have the ability to sit down and negotiate our work with these companies. That was Eric Winston of Durham, North Carolina. We are waiting on the results right now from the Amazon union election in Bessemer, Alabama, which we will not have until the end of March. So we're getting fun little updates like the fact that Amazon apparently had a stoplight outside of its warehouse sped up so that the organizers have less time to talk to the workers. That detail was courtesy of friend of the show, Kim Kelly. But while we wait for that result, plenty of other Amazon news continues. So this week, we're bringing you a report on Amazon working conditions in the UK. I spoke with Maeve McLennigan, an investigative reporter behind the report. So we were looking at job adverts all across the UK in the run up to Christmas. And we found masses of adverts for Amazon warehouses. But when we looked into them, every single one was through an agency, a recruitment agency. So this is almost 9,000 ads run through just two agencies called ADECO and PMP Recruitment. And when we started to talk to workers from those agencies, we heard a whole litany of complaints. So people saying that they weren't getting the hours that they expected to get, that their shifts were cancelled at the last minute, sometimes by text message, sometimes after they'd travelled for more than an hour to get to the warehouse. And in some cases, wages weren't going, were going unpaid, uh, holiday pay was missing, and they were really struggling with these agencies to, to get any answers. And all of this was interesting because Amazon says publicly that they pledge that there are no zero-hour contract workers in their warehouses, and that if uh, even their agency workers should get a minimum of 20 hours paid work a week uh, if they're working in their warehouses in the UK. And folks on the ground were telling us that that just isn't the case. Yeah. What is the benefit for Amazon of hiring through these agencies? So these were 
agency workers um, that were being used to fill seasonal positions over Christmas. So there's this boom in the UK. Uh, Amazon's doing amazingly here. Their profits are up by 50%. And then there's a, you know, usually a Christmas boom and add to that lockdown and a pandemic. So it allows Amazon or, or whichever company is using an agency to bring workers in at short notice to fill um, gaps in their workforce. Now, what a, a lawyer that we spoke to, a top employment lawyer also told us was that it also allows companies to arm's length themselves from the workers. Um, and that allows you as a company to kind of disassociate yourself from any mistreatment or complaints of those workers. So it's, it's really putting a kind of middleman between you and the workforce. So can you explain briefly for our listeners who aren't in the UK what a zero hours contract is? Sure. So in the UK, zero hours contracts have been become notorious really over the past years. Um, it's basically an agreement that has no kind of minimum hour stipulation in it. So you can sign up and um, you, you might get asked to work five hours a week. You must, might get asked to work 50 hours a week. Um, they're kind of, I guess, they're promoted in the sense of, of being flexible, you know, that people say, oh, if you become an Uber driver or, or you do delivery takeaways um, and you're on a zero hour contract, it means you can pick the hours that you want. But in reality, what it can mean is that you have no recourse as, as a worker to any kind of minimum salary coming in. Um, and it leaves, you know, workers were telling us in Amazon warehouses, it leaves you really at a loss to, to plan your day, to plan childcare, to know what your week is going to look like, to know if you're going to be able to pay your bills one week to the next if you don't have a guaranteed number of hours. And I should say that one of the agencies that, that worked with Amazon, um, Adeco, had zero hours. The other had minimum hour contracts, which uh, give you a kind of a minimum number of hours across a year but it doesn't say anything about weekly or monthly. And, you know, if you're coming in to work a couple of months to Amazon over the winter, um, that really doesn't do anything more for you than a zero-hour contract would. Right, right. So, yeah, there are a few details in the report that really struck me. One was that workers were getting sort of text messages informing them when they were supposed to work and then sometimes just being completely ghosted. Yeah, absolutely. We heard from people that, you know, suddenly the, the messages that they were expecting to get about their shift patterns just went completely silent for weeks on end. And, and they, you know, this one guy, Nathan, told us, you know, he tried desperately to get in contact by email, by phone. He was trying to find out from the agency, do I still have a job? And it was weeks later before he heard anything. And, you know, he was assuming that he'd been kind of let go. And then out of the blue gets a message saying, oh, your shift is tomorrow or next week or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, that kind of thing was fairly common that people were getting texts in the middle of the night um, or night shift workers who were trying to get themselves into this rhythm of getting up at, at you know, ungodly hours and um, getting messages just a few hours before saying, oh, you're not going to be needed. And in another case, um, a, a woman told me that she she really wanted to find out from this agency, PMP, how long her contract was going to run for because she wanted to plan her bills and her life and looking for other work. And they said, oh, check the Amazon A to Z app, which is the app where you kind of log your shift. Um, and she looked on that and according to her, it said, oh, you're on till September. This was in January. 
So she thought, oh my gosh, I've got a job for nine months. You know, brilliant. I wasn't expecting that. And then the next week she got her two weeks notice letter saying we're letting you go. So it was just this real confusion, this sense of, um, you know, even if this is temporary seasonal work, there wasn't any clarity as to day from day if you were working, never mind next week or the week after. Yeah. Yeah. And then some of the workers were having a hard time getting their pay or being underpaid for shifts that they worked. Yeah. So we heard lots of different things. Um, we heard people who had worked the night shift being paid the day rate. So that's about a pound less an hour, which really adds up if you, you know, if you don't see, spot that for weeks. And um, we've heard people who had taken holiday and not been paid for that or hadn't been paid for their training days. Um, and a really common complaint was just this this real um, frustration of trying to get in contact with anyone um, and just not being able to, to make contact. You know, we heard often people being told, oh, payroll is dealt with separately um, by a different part of the organization. So, so that's not one for us. Um, and people really kind of getting into uh, uh, kind of between the rock and the hard place there of not being able to find anyone to give them an answer on that. So we spoke to or heard from 16 agency workers, but also analyzed around 200 reviews, online reviews and online posts on social media. And it was um, a really common complaint, the, the shift being dropped and money just going missing, going unpaid and the frustration of having to fight to get that back. Yeah. Yeah. And I was struck by also the detail that in many cases where these jobs are being advertised, there just aren't that almost any other jobs. The one place that really stuck out for me was that um, in one area, 58% of all job ads were for Amazon warehouse jobs. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, unemployment rates are, are rising quickly here in the UK, um, predominantly because of, of lockdown and uh, the pandemic more generally. Um, I think around 10 million people are furloughed, so they've kind of been been paid by their work, but they but they don't have um, work to go to. And so there is this this crisis, this employment crisis that's having a knock on effect in all kinds of um, parts of life. So there aren't that many people um, hiring right now. But one of the real kind of success stories of the pandemic, um, you know, business wise, has been Amazon. Um, they've been expanding, they've been um, opening new warehouses, um, opening pop-up warehouses to deal with the demand. Um, and so, yeah, what we saw when we looked at the, the job adverts and the thousands and tens of thousands of job adverts out there was that Amazon warehouse jobs make up a huge percentage in some areas. In many areas, more than a third of all of the jobs advertised that we saw were for an Amazon warehouse. In Scotland, uh, 92% of all the warehouse jobs were Amazon warehouse jobs. So, you know, we know that particularly low paid workers have been laid off during the pandemic. Um, and these are really the only jobs out there. You know, I was talking to lots of people that had worked in bars, who had worked in hotels, in all kinds of range of hospitality jobs previously. And they're going to these warehouses because they are the jobs available. Um, sadly, what that means is you don't have a lot of other options then you're kind of stuck with like it or lump it for these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the role of unions in fighting against all of this? 
So unions here in the UK have been um, working a lot, but m more, more often with the more permanent employees in Amazon, the, the blue badge employees, the temporary workers wear green badges, permanent uh, employees here wear blue badges. So they've been working with the blue badge employees to you know, fight for different things. There's, there, I think there have been um, big steps forward. Um, Amazon's pay compared to other warehouses is, is pretty good. Um, and there are lots of benefits available to more permanent employees. The, the kind of slight issue is that these temporary agency workers often fall through the cracks. And what we were hearing was because of the nature of the work in the warehouses, you can go your whole shift without really interacting with anyone. Um, you know, you've got, you're given your scanner, you set off on your tasks and you don't really need to talk to anyone. And then that is exacerbated by the fact you're keeping two meters away because of COVID-19 restrictions. So it becomes quite hard in that space for um, people to feel this kind of um, collective power that, that unions are so powerful in, in demonstrating and bringing people together. So I think it's, it's particularly tricky when it comes to agency workers for the unions to, to really um, make the strides that they have done for other workers. Excellent. So how can people keep up with you and your work? So we are publishing on uh, the Bureau's website, which is thebureauinvestigates.com. You can follow us on Twitter if you search for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. It's at TBIJ. Um, and I'm going to be continuing to report on employment and labour issues for the foreseeable future. So hopefully we will have many more investigations of this ilk coming up. That was Maeve McLennigan of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and we will put a link to her report on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. A lawsuit was filed last Friday on behalf of eight young Malian men who claimed that they were trafficked as children into farms in Cote d'Ivoire, where they were then coerced into harvesting cocoa for the supply chains of several major multinational candy companies. The suit, brought by IR Advocates, alleges that Nestle, Hershey, Mars, Cargill, Mondelez, Barry Calabelle, and Olam owe the victims damages and compensation for the exploitation they suffered as children. So just in time for Valentine's Day, the suit is highlighting long-standing human rights issues in the cocoa supply chain, which begins in poorly regulated farms in big cocoa exporting countries like Cote d'Ivoire. The pattern of labor abuses in cocoa farming appears to be getting worse. University of Chicago researchers estimate that 1.56 million children worked in the cocoa fields of Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana during the 2018-2019 growing season. That represents a 14% increase from 2015 levels. The lawsuit centers on seeking damages under the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, alleging that the victims were enslaved as children and forced to work in extremely dangerous conditions. IR advocates argued in the complaint, quote, in conducting field work for this case, plaintiff's legal team easily and routinely found children using machetes, applying chemicals, and performing other hazardous tasks on cocoa plantations producing for one or more of the defendants, unquote. These aren't just kids on the farm helping out their parents. This is a structurally entrenched child indentured labor force. 
Throughout the industry, our advocates states, quote, the work children engage in on the cocoa farms includes burning and clearing fields, cutting down trees to expand cocoa plantations, spraying pesticides, using sharp tools to break pods, and transporting heavy loads of cocoa pods and water, unquote. A 2014 Department of Labor report found that, quote, the children are frequently not paid for their work. Some of their wages are paid to the recruiter or trafficker. These children are held against their will on isolated farms, are locked in their living quarters at night, and are threatened and beaten if they attempt to escape. They are punished by their employers with physical abuse. They are forced to work long hours, including overtime, and are required to work even when they are sick. Some children are denied sufficient food by their traffickers and employers, unquote. The IR Advocates lawsuit calls out the multinational corporations that lead the global candy manufacturing industry for failing to follow through on its public relations campaigns, pledging to eliminate child labor from their supply chains. Those date back nearly 20 years. The so-called Harkin-Engel protocol was a public pledge by chocolate producers to end child labor by 2005, which they have obviously failed to follow through on. World Cocoa Foundation President Richard Scobie said in a statement for Business Insider, quote, the cocoa and chocolate industry has zero tolerance for any instances of forced labor and the supply chain. The government of Cote d'Ivoire has a comprehensive legal framework in place to pursue, arrest, and bring to justice those who traffic children or adults, unquote. In other words, shifting the responsibility of enforcing these labor codes onto the relatively impoverished governments that depend heavily on the cocoa industry's business. But human rights advocates see these pledges as empty corporate whitewashing, while all along the companies have deliberately profited off of slave labor. The suit argues, quote, knowing that they are financially benefiting from trafficked children who perform hazardous forced labor and having the industry control to effectively end child slavery, defendants have willfully continued to use forced child labor and have acted to prevent effective measures to address forced child labor so they could continue to benefit from the cheap labor of child slaves, unquote. And frankly, as long as the world's consumers continue to turn a blind eye to the horrors unfolding in the cocoa plantations, it's just going to be business as usual for many more Valentine's Days to come. Is influencing the work of brand building on social media, particularly Instagram and TikTok, in order to get paid to advertise goods to your following, actually work? Many would argue yes, and now a union is taking on the job of organizing the influencers. An article at Backstage, a trade publication for actors, notes, quote, If you make your living as an influencer on TikTok, Instagram, Twitch, or any other social media platform, you will soon have union protection. SAG-AFTRA has announced a new influencer agreement, which allows anyone who is paid to advertise products via their individual social media platforms to be covered by the union. The influencer agreement was created in response to the unique nature of influencer-generated branded content and offers a new way for influencers to work under a SAG-AFTRA agreement. We want to be able to support both current and future SAG-AFTRA members in this space and for them to be able to access the benefits of union coverage, SAG-AFTRA President Gabrielle Carteris said in a statement to Backstage. The agreement allows influencers to categorize that influencer-generated branded content as advertising and thus qualify for health and pension benefits through the union. It allows current influencers to join the union as members and for actors who are doing influencer work to count that as real work. Anyone who has a signed contract with an advertiser for such content can be counted as long as they are incorporated as a business. So, the union has weighed in. Influencing is a job, and you can organize it. Congrats, influencers. Get in on those health and pension benefits. And how about some posts about the benefits of being a union member?
When Joe Biden was campaigning for president, he never came across as the most pro-labor candidate. And the left flank of the Democrat, or rather anti-Trump vote, tended to gravitate towards Bernie Sanders' full-throatedly populist democratic socialist agenda. But in the end, Biden was who he got, and he rode into the White House with a lot of the labor movement's hopes, as well as some healthy skepticism pinned on him. Now that Biden is starting to roll out some of that labor agenda, which includes a $15 minimum wage, expansion of workers' right to organize, and beefed up health and safety protections at work, we're going to take a hard look at what the labor landscape will look like under Biden, especially now that the Democrats control both chambers of Congress and is getting ready to advance landmark legislation to strengthen organizing and collective bargaining rights. We talked to Celine McNicholas, Director of Government Affairs and Labor Council with the Economic Policy Institute, to get the lowdown on what to expect and hope for under Biden on labor rights and worker protections. So Biden came into office with a labor agenda that seemed to cover many of the issues that labor advocates had been pressing him on throughout his campaign. For instance, strengthening the rights of workers to organize, a $15 hourly minimum wage, expanding protections for gig workers, et cetera. What are some of the key promises that you want him to make good on in these first months of his presidency? And do you have a sense at this point of how serious he is about prioritizing any of these goals? Sure. So first, thank you for for having me. Um, in in terms of you know where we are right now, I think it's helpful to take a step back and sort of look at the treatment um, on on these issues in in the past. You know, this these tend to be um, unfortunately campaign promises um, that often don't see the light of day in terms of the legislative process. I, I think it's very encouraging in in the first um, you know few weeks of the Biden administration that we are seeing um, action on on some of these uh, workers' rights issues in a way that perhaps we haven't. Um, um, from prior Democratic administrations. Um, I am personally encouraged by at least the president's commitment to continue talking about the, these issues um, and putting them at the forefront. I think key among them is the minimum wage. That was something that was discussed last night at a, a town hall that the president participated in. Um, so I think just, you know, talking about them is is really critical to moving them through a legislative process. You know, you have to spend some political capital on these issues, and that means keeping them, you know, at the forefront and holding Congress accountable to move them. So I think the real question is, what is actually movable in this moment with the Congress that we have? Um, so that's a separate, you know, question um, from, from what you, you know, sort of structured this around in terms of the the president's agenda, but you know, I think look, he's he's uh, he's prioritizing, you know, getting nominations moving for key labor agencies. Um, I am, you know, very encouraged by some of the names that have come, you know, out uh, at the Department of Labor. Um, particularly, uh, I want to highlight Michelle Evermore, who has been, um, and you know, a, a wonderful ally on unemployment insurance. Given the you know UI crisis that we're we're facing right now, having um, you know an expert uh, who's committed to, you know, expanding, modernizing and making sure that, you know, unemployment insurance is available to, to workers, regardless of misclassification issues is key. Um, and there are a host of other folks that are, you know, longstanding workers, allies and advocates who have, you know, been tasked by the administration to serve. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that as well. Beyond the legislative process, we've seen uh, the Biden administration seeking to reverse many of Trump's most uh, egregious policies through executive orders, 
Um, not surprising given that Trump's a lot of Trump's policies were done through executive orders in the first place. But um, can you walk us through some of the significant executive actions that Biden has undertaken so far with respect to labor and employment policy and uh, what he plans to implement? Uh, sure. So, you know, as, as you touched on, um, the, the Trump administration issued a series of, of executive orders uh, early uh, in the administration and sort of continued the drumbeat uh, throughout the administration, primarily attacking the federal workforce and their right to unionize. Um, and so, you know, what, what uh, President Biden did in his first, uh, you know, days in office is, is simply repeal many of those most, uh, you know, sort of egregious um, actions against the federal workforce and also has announced, um, you know, plans to consider raising the minimum wage for federal contractors. And so not only undoing the bad work, uh, you know, done by, by the Trump administration, much of which was frankly very petty. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of question how overall impactful some of those uh, measures were. Um, I think it more made a statement that the administration was opposed to workers being able to organize um, in any, uh, you know, fashion. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy that the Biden administration sort of did what most um, advocates predicted it would do is just come in, um, you know, pull back many of those, uh, you know, problematic uh, executive orders, but also make it clear that they plan to go beyond simply undoing um, the negative anti-worker actions that the Trump administration, you know, put in place and also, um, you know, really make progress on critical worker protections as well. I think anything that can be done on the minimum wage right now is, um, you know, absolutely uh, crucial. And, you know, we can talk about the legislative, you know, opportunities and process down the line, but, you know, the federal workforce is not an insignificant uh, segment of the overall U.S. workforce, and that the president does have incredible authority uh, to control the wages and working conditions of the of that particular, um, you know, workforce. And so I am encouraged and hopeful that you know we're going to see progress there. That has a, you know an impact on other you know, uh, work outside of simply those federal contractors, it drives up wages across the board. So those actions really are significant. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I think all advocates are happy that it's been tackled, you know, early that an indications have been made that they're serious about doing these things. And you can see that not only at the, um, you know, executive order level, but across, the agencies as, as well. And I don't want to neglect, um, you know, to talk about the National Labor Relations Board, because, you know, I am, uh, I think, most most of uh, those of us who are labor advocates and follow, uh, you know, the, the work of that agency um, are very encouraged by the, um, you know, expeditious uh, termination of the Trump general counsel, um, who was just an enemy to working people, um, and, uh, you know, looked for every opportunity to make it impossible for workers to unionize. Um, and so, you know, uh, sort of showing him the door early on, I think, was a was one of the most uh, encouraging actions that the Biden administration, I think, has has taken and um, having acting, you know, general counsel, um, you know, Peter Orr, uh, a long term uh, regional director uh, from uh Chicago move in and undo, you know, very quickly uh, many of the actions that were so anti-worker that the Trump general counsel had undertaken uh, is, I think, you know, it's actually impactful in the moment for working people. Um, and it doesn't tend to get the same attention as sort of those executive, um, you know, actions that uh, capture a little bit more of the focus. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask about Rob in a second, but um, just on the executive orders, I mean, he has also signaled that he wants to 
uh, change some of the uh, positions of the, um, that the Trump administration put in place related to uh, immigration and and work visas and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, is that going to have an appreciable effect on, I mean, that does affect workers in the private sector. Um, sure, sure. While I'm not an immigration, uh, you know, law expert, um, I, what I can say is, you know, one of the, the ways in which uh, employers, um, you know, defeat organizing drives um, and frankly, just, uh, you know, hold hostage workers' rights in general is to use um, workers, uh, you know, status um, whether they are working, you know, um, documented with a, with a work visa or, or otherwise um, against them. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of bad law in this area. So, um, you know, employers, I think, feel even more emboldened to sort of deny, you know, workers their rights using that threat of immigration status um, as as a weapon. Um, and it, it at times, you know, is used to sort of, like I said, defeat an organizing drive. And I think, you know, even just not to pay wages and, and sort of silence workers speaking up against uh, those, um, you know, uh, illegal practices. Right. So I think anything that can be done to empower workers, regardless of their immigration status, is going to have broader effects, um, you know, in ter- in, on all, you know, workers' rights issues. On the NLRB, um Clearly, um, he signaled there's a new sheriff in town when he fired Peter Robb. Um, it seems that's that's kind of unusual, given that Robb had um, a year left in his term. Um, so what do you think that uh, might signal in terms of uh, where the NLRB is going to go now? I, mean, I, I guess there's a whole stack of <laughs> decisions um, that were undertaken by the Trump NLRB that they could go about reversing. But um, is, is this pretty unusual? You're right that the firing, um, you know, is is an unusual action. But I want to talk about it in a larger context, which is that the Trump uh, administration's National Labor Relations Board um, was very unusual in the way it conducted its business. It was more aggressively anti-worker than you know any um, any any board that um, you know I think in the history of, of the agency. I would not be out of bounds in saying that. Um, and in particular, the general counsel, um, you know, was an incredibly aggressive anti-worker uh, force in in our government um, and really wreaked havoc on on workers' rights and his his time um, there. And, you know, the there, there is no private right of action under the National Labor Relations Act and getting a little bit into the weeds here. What does that mean in reality? It means that, you know, workers are reliant on that office of the general counsel to take violations of their rights to a union and to collective bargaining um, to the board for for vindication. So if you have a general counsel that's posture is, you know, the National Labor Relations Act, this foundational, um, you know, law that gives us all private sector workers the right to a union, allegedly the right to a union and collective bargaining, and, you know, sort of says, hey, actually, this doesn't apply to certain workers, like, you know, gig workers that may be misclassified or, you know, um, I don't think it's it's coercive for an, an employer to, you know, threaten, uh, a, you know, a worker with his or her job. If you take if you have a, a, a basically a, a cop on the beat that has that attitude that essentially precludes, you know, large segments of the workforce from accessing that right. And so that is what I would argue was the posture of the Trump uh, administration's general counsel, um, hugely detrimental impacts to working people uh, during that time. And so, yes, this was, um, you know, 
not not the sort of traditional course of transition from one administration to another, even you know a, a party switch, but it was absolutely you know necessary in order to stem what was just egregious like out of bounds behavior in terms of administering workers' rights, and that point I think can't be um, made often enough. I don't think enough attention was given to you know, what was being done in the, in the agency during the Trump administration. Cause so, you know, there were so many things on fire so often that um, unfortunately like workers' rights issues don't tend to then captivate much, uh, you know, uh, attention. Um, and so I think that the agency got away, frankly, with, you know, um, a great deal of damage uh, under the Trump, you know, tenure. Can you speak a little bit more about some of Biden's appointments thus far in the Labor Department? Um, we're interested, of course, in what Marty Walsh might be like as a labor secretary. But um, some of our labor geeks in our audience, you know, like me, know that um, Peter Orr that you mentioned was the person who ruled that Northwestern University football players were, in fact, employees. So we're uh, wondering what we might see from him. Sure. So, you know, I think in terms of uh, the Secretary of Labor nomination, I think it's wonderful to, you know, have selected uh, a nominee that comes from a history of, you know, being involved in in labor um, with an attention to union issues, even though there's sort of that misperception, right, that the Department of Labor controls, you know, union uh, activities when in reality it is the National Labor Relations Board that has jurisdiction over that. You know, it's critical to have a cabinet level, you know, representative who, who, again, pushes these issues front and center, right? So the jurisdiction lines aren't, um, you know, aren't, don't need dictate, you know, what policies, um, you know, get attention and, and consume political capital. And so, you know, I think the, the confirmation hearing, let's just, you know, be candid, was a little bit of a love uh, fest. I think personally watching it, I count it like people congratulating each other on being coaches more than talking about labor issues to some extent, which was uh, its own um, interesting process. But um, but I think that, you know, the, the good thing about this is clearly it demonstrated that, you know, this is this is he's going to be a secretary of labor that has some buy in, among, you know, across the aisle. Um, you know, and I'm hopeful that he uses that political capital um, not to keep it nice all the time, you know, but to actually advance, you know, to to use uh, the the coach, um, you know, metaphor, which I can't believe I'm going to do. But, uh, you know, to move the ball down the field here, like w- he can use his, you know, these relationships and the fact that, um, you know, obviously uh, he he was told he was qualified multiple times during the hearing. I would hope then that when he says that we need a $15 minimum wage, that that qualification is not ignored. Um, you know, I, I'm also encouraged by, you know, Julie Sue being the deputy secretary nominee. She um, has a long history of, you know, working um, as, a, as a labor advocate and doing wonderful things in California. And so, you know, I, I would hope that that's a team, um, you know, that can really uh, position these issues front and center in an administration. And again, that Walsh is someone who, you know, clearly has some bipartisan buy-in um, in his uh, in his service. And, uh, you know, it's it'll really be an open question as to how he uses that. I hope it's not used uh, exclusively to talk about um, non-controversial issues like job training uh, and instead use to talk about real issues that impact working people, you know, like wage and hour enforcement and, you know, uh, a minimum wage that supports, um, you know, middle class families. And uh, any thoughts on whether we might see some rulings that uh, uh, college athletes are really workers? I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, and, and to go to, you know, your question of, of, of Peter Orr, um, you know, because 
it, it, it is that that position, the general counsel position at the at the National Labor Relations Board, as I mentioned um, in our earlier discussion, is really critical because all private sector workers covered by the act are reliant on that office to access their rights. Right. And so the wonderful thing about about um, Peter Orr uh, is you know he has um, a demonstrated commitment uh, in the in the Northwestern ruling, um, you know, certainly is an example of that, of deciding to you know issue complaint on behalf of these uh you know, these, these, uh, workers and, and pursue that at the regional level was, you know, was, was great. But I also, you know, I, I think that he's someone who has a, a history of service with the agency. Uh, there's no substitute, right, for um, experience um, with these issues and the way the agency works in terms of your ability to be effective. Um, and so I, you know, I think we're seeing that um, in his, you know, his first, uh, what is it, two, two weeks, and it's, it's been a litany of, of actions taken. So I think you can really see the impact that somebody who, you know, has the experience is, is dedicated, you know, to, to serving, um, you know, workers' rights under the Act and administering the Act properly. Like what a difference truly two weeks, you know, can, can make. Um, he's taken a great number of actions um, that have immediate, you know, impact. Some of them uh, get a lot of attention. Uh, I'm thinking here of um, his, uh, his move to call back uh, cases that um, would have challenged uh, the ability to use the beloved Scabby the Rat in, um, you know, in, in, in union, uh, you know, protests. Um, and then there's, you know, I, I think, you know, really serious actions in terms of, you know, where he's going to issue complaint, you know, because the truth is that the Trump general counsel restricted all of our rights under the NLRA, all private sector, you know, workers' rights by failing to issue complaint, I'm guessing in numerous cases where, you know, complaint was warranted. Um, and I think, you know, most uh, encouragingly, you know, the Biden, you know, Biden's acting general counsel here is going to, uh, you know, remedy that and has already begun to remedy that um, in, in his service. And so even though the, those those cases may be, you know, considered more run of the mill, they're actually going to get the treatment that and the agency resources, you know, that, that they deserve, which was not happening under the Trump administration. And that means all, you know, working people had less access to, you know, an already very weak right to a union. Of course, part of the reason that Biden is going to have to do so much through executive branch things like this is that the Senate is not going to vote for much of anything anytime soon. Um, so that means that a lot of the legislative agenda is going to have to go through budget reconciliation. So before we get into what those things might be, can you briefly explain reconciliation for those of our listeners who um, don't remember the last time we went through this particular hell? Sure. So, um, you know, reconciliation is is simply a, a, an expedited legislative process. Um, it has some rules to it uh, that, you know, it can basically be used um, to uh, advance things that impact federal spending. So because it is a, quote, budget reconciliation, right, it has to have a budgetary impact. As long as you can sort of demonstrate that, then you can hook on, uh, you know, to this expedited legislative process that also, key to your question, avoids, avoids the Senate filibuster. Um, and that is what everything is, you know, you, you needing only that, that simple majority in the Senate is, you know, going to be the, the make or break um, for what we're able to, to pass with the current composition of the Senate, right? So that is the, the, the key to reconciliation is it gets you to that 51, right? Like as long as you've got that 50, you're, you're good to go under reconciliation. But the problem is not every, you know, 
element of legislation can fit into that. As I said, you have to demonstrate that there is some sort of budgetary fiscal impact in order to meet that reconciliation um, test. So, you know, the the example that I think is captivating a lot of attention right now is um, is the federal minimum wage. Mm-hmm. That is something that you know has made it through sort of the first tranche of the process in in the House, um, you know, committee markup. Um, but the the ongoing debate is: Does it have the required you know fiscal um, budgetary impact in order to make it? something that can be considered and moved and passed through budget reconciliation. Yeah. And so while we're talking about reconciliation and the $15 an hour minimum wage, um, does it matter that the person in charge of the Senate Budget Committee is now comrade Bernie Sanders? I certainly um, hope that it ultimately will. And I can say that I think that it absolutely, the only reason that we are here right now um, you know, having this debate about does the $15 minimum wage bill work under the rules of reconciliation is, as I see it, Chairman Sanders, you know, pushing this sort of demanding, um, you know, that it be considered, that the fiscal impact be, you know, studied, acknowledged, recognized by CBO. There'll be a lot of discussion now about whether or not that was a good or a bad thing, because, of course, the the um, CBO, Congressional the Budget Office, produced a report that did show that it does have, the minimum wage does have a fiscal impact. Um, and, you know, what, what, where do we go with that then? You know, is, is it sufficient to meet this th- this test? I think that we have an advocate there that is going to push about as hard as as anyone um, you know can push uh, for this. Um, and you know, it, in reality, you know, it, it's it's like to to me and you know, obviously working at the Economic Policy Institute, you know, we've put out um, papers. My colleagues uh, Ben Zipper um, and Dave Cooper, um, you know, have have looked at this. Josh Bivens has looked at the um, you know impact on uh, reconciliation spending of the minimum wage. There's ample you know, evidence that this has a, a fiscal impact. But again, so much of this is in political capital. So I think the question really is, you know, what, what will um, you know, Chairman Sanders and frankly, you know, progressives in the House, um, you know, Representative Jayapal, you know, was quoted, um, you know, uh, earlier this week as basically saying that if the Senate sends back you know, a reconciliation measure stripped of the $15 minimum wage, you know, she's, she and other progressives are going to have to think about, you know, whether or not this is something they can support them because they see that $15, you know, piece, this fundamental, you know, element as critical to passing the legislation on for them. So, you know, this is going to become, you know, far, you know, a far bigger political fight, um, you know, than, than I think, uh, you know, the administration, I fear, like may may not be seeing that right now. But I, I think for for progressives, every indication of you know going on the record as as um, you know Rep. Jayapal did shows that this is a fight that they you know they, they feel confident in, and, and certainly the the polling, the national polling on this bears that out. I think it's eighty percent, you know, um, of of the in a general poll, um, you know, support raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. Yeah. So, how do you think? the pandemic uh, might affect Biden's labor agenda in these first uh, several months of his presidency. Um, Obviously, um, the pandemic and the attendant economic crisis uh, have kind of amplified all the underlying inequities in labor policy and in the workforce generally, um, particularly with essential workers um, 
But do you think that the ongoing crises around unemployment and public health and worker safety, um, could those add momentum and urgency to uh, some elements of his plans? Or could it force some of the more ambitious measures onto the back burner, uh, given that we're also dealing with uh, small businesses who are in, in crisis as well? Well, we have an opportunity right now to sort of decide, um, you know, what kind of economy um, and, you know, what kind of workforce we want to, you know, construct coming out of, of the pandemic, um, you know, to, to sort of use the, the Biden um, branding there. We, we can we're, we're going to build out of this pandemic. So it's sort of like, do we actually decide to build back better? Um, and I, I hope um, that the, the Biden administration holds true to, you know, its its promise um, that issues that affect, you know, working people like health and safety on the job, the right to a union, um, you know, a fair wage, essential workers being treated as essential workers in a way that is not lawn signs and a lot of, you know, um, thanks, uh, you know, but actually acknowledging the critical um, you know, role those positions play in keeping us all fed and healthy and cared for and our trash picked up. And, um, you know, are we going to treat those jobs as quality jobs or is it just, um, you know, messaging? And so I, I think in terms of, you know, the, does this build pressure? I think it's incumbent upon all uh, those of us who are, are advocates, um, you know, and, and working people themselves. And I think that's been the most encouraging thing to me in this sort of horrible time, right, is to see that, you know, working people and consumers in moments are actually, you know, sort of, I think, emboldened, right? Like if you're an essential worker and, you know, you, you're walking off the job at Trader Joe's at Whole Foods, or, you know, you're an Amazon warehouse worker and, you know, packages aren't going to, you know, get out without your, you know, labor. Um, I think, you know, and being willing to like walk out, right, because of health and safety concerns and people sort of saying, do I want to then shop at a place that treats, these people who are putting their lives on the line for me to get my food or me to get, you know, critical, um, you know, or even non-critical stuff, you know, stuff delivered. I think, you know, all of that, it's incumbent upon us to sort of keep that pressure up, right? You know, I, I think it, it should feel urgent. It, it, these are urgent issues. Um, certainly getting an a, a emergency temporary health and safety standard out so that working people are not putting their lives on, you know, on the line um, to, to deliver, uh, you know, critical services is, is essential. And the Biden administration has made that a priority, but it's got to go beyond, you know, those things. Um, I think if we've seen one thing, um, you know, uh, from our union uh, coverage data in, in 2020, my colleague um, uh, Heidi Shearholtz and I and um, Margaret Poydock just did a report on sort of what what does you know what does union membership and union coverage look like in 2020? And the the takeaway for me was that you know unions helped people keep their jobs amidst layoff. There were work sharing. There were you know so it's it's got to go beyond just sort of some of those low hanging fruit things and really re reinvigorate the, you know, the right to a union, as I see it, sort of restore that right. That should be the primary, um, in my view, political legislative focus of, of the Biden administration. Yeah, I actually recall um, towards the end of the Trump administration, there were a number of pretty consequential NLRB rulings related to workers with union representation um, trying to advocate for safety and health in the workplace. And um, and yeah, it would be interesting to see if, uh, you know, how quickly the Biden administration moves to undo some of that, because um, that was really where you see the intersection of 
you know, the ability of workers to organize and, um, and like their ability to survive on the job. Right. And, you know, and I, I'll just say that with union density, you know, where it is, right. Um, which is, you know, historically low, you know, now's the time it either, we either get a meaningful right to a union, um, in, in our workplace or, you know, we are going to choose to come out of the pandemic with greater inequality uh, than we went into the pandemic. And that should be unacceptable for policymakers. It should be unacceptable to all those of us who, you know, who, who are dependent upon a paycheck for, um, you know, for our living. Um, you know, we this is one of those moments where I feel like we cannot afford not to do the, the thing that needs to be done, which is actually meaningful labor law reform. Yep. And speaking of which, um, so the PRO Act was just reintroduced and for the first time, it seems like it has a possibly a decent chance of passing. Um, can you talk about what this legislation would do to uh, the existing body of labor law that hasn't changed in decades and decades and uh, what it might do perhaps to address the uh, long, steady decline of organized labor over the past few decades? Sure. So the, you know, the, the PRO Act um, was, was introduced last Congress. I'll point out it passed the House with bipartisan support. Not many uh, measures can, uh, can claim that, uh, that record um, and was reintroduced, as you said, uh, you know, earlier this month. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a bill that basically reforms various aspects of existing labor law reform. So it makes amendments to the National Labor Relations Act that we, we touched on um, earlier. And, you know, I'll, say, I'll maybe just like pick one or two key being, you know, it, it makes it a little bit easier for folks to get a union because it reforms the process a bit. It, it essentially um, takes some of the prior uh, Obama administration error reforms that were made by the board to streamline the election process and actually um, enshrines them in the statute. So employers don't get to engage in some of those delay tactics and litigating unnecessary elements in order to get to a union election. Um, and it also, uh, it puts meaningful penalties in place. There are really no penalties under existing law. So employers are able to violate, uh, you know, workers' rights with, with very little actual consequence. Um, and the, the, the bill would, would do a lot to, to remedy both of those. And then there are a series of other, um, you know, issues that, that are, are addressed um, by the legislation as well. Everything from making sure that workers can um, compel all firms that um, have any kind of control over their um, wages and working conditions to the bargaining table, uh, making sure that employers actually, uh, you know, sit down and negotiate in good faith. And if they don't, then a contract will be um, reached through arbitration. Um, and I think, you know, the final thing I'll say is it, it expands the, the coverage of the National Labor Relations Act so that workers who are um, unfortunately excluded, uh, you know, now do have um, the right to, to a union moving forward. So I think it makes a, you know, a number of, of really, uh, you know, important and significant, um, you know, reforms. We've been talking about some of the brass tacks of getting legislation and different policies passed, but um, in terms of the broader labor movement, it seems like Biden is enjoying a bit of a halo effect, uh, having just taken office, um, and that probably goes for his labor agenda as well. What do you think should be the role of unions and worker centers and uh, groups like 
EPI uh, in holding the Biden administration accountable in the coming months when it comes to actually um, getting some of this stuff uh, implemented. What I'll say about this is it's it's critical that um, organized labor demand that for the first time in a very long time that these issues actually consume the political capital that they need to consume in the first hundred days. Uh, you know, it, it should not be enough um, to see these issues slip, you know, um, further into the legislative agenda. We should get a minimum wage uh, increase. It, it isn't particularly helpful, nor do I think it is, um, you know, an encouraging um, statement that the that the president sort of says he doesn't think that minimum wage can survive through the reconciliation process, which he is on record saying. Um, I think it should be that you are fighting to get minimum wage passed in any way, shape or form that you can. Um, and so, you know, there's a wealth of, of economic, um, you know, research and uh, analysis that demonstrate that, that there is a fiscal impact. And there's a wealth of economic uh, research and data that demonstrates that this economy can more than handle a $15 minimum wage. So this discussion of gradual, of, of incremental, you know, the $15 is in 2025. It is not tomorrow. It is already gradual. So buying into um, Republican talking points on these issues you know, I think it is it is in the short term very incumbent upon particularly organizations like the Economic Policy Institute to make the case over and over again that this is already gradual. This is not only um, something that should be debated about whether or not it has a fiscal impact, but it actually is necessary in order for us to have an even remote chance at a more equal economy that works for working people. This is an issue worth fighting for. In my view, if a $15 minimum wage in 2025 is not an issue that you are worth going to the, you know, mat on, then, you know, I question whether or not this is going to be, you know, a, a really pro-worker, pro-labor presidency. This seems like a fundamental issue to me. Um, and so I think what organized labor can do and, and is doing, right, is, is trying to build momentum around this, this issue, trying to build, you know, momentum and a, and a campaign around labor law reform, um, you know, and I don't think any of us should buy into the notion that, um, you know, we, we need to do everything through, to touch on Sarah's like question about reconciliation before, that we need to do everything through a reconciliation process. I think you know, the case should be made to the American people who then will respond in polls and show that 80% of them, you know, believe that the minimum wage should be, uh, you know, increased. We should be showing the legislation that that the vast majority of, um, you know, of Americans want and, and show that the system, you know, there's something wrong with a system that does not move legislation that actually, um, you know, advances things that are critical to, to most of the people who live and work in this country. So, you know, it, it, we shouldn't contort our needs to meet a process that is essentially just, um, you know, an expedited legislative process to get around a certain reality. If the reality is that our elected officials and the current system that we, we use to pass legislation doesn't work for us, then we should be talking about filibuster reform. And perhaps that should be another area that I would encourage organized labor and progressive advocates. You know, we're all talking about it, but I think, you know, as we contort ourselves in a million and one ways to try and, you know, make our issues move through budget reconciliation process, I would hope that, you know, that the larger fight doesn't get lost um, and that we don't take 
you know, we don't start piecemealing things and taking them apart in a way that then whatever ends up passing is only a fraction of what's needed to serve, you know, these issues and really reform things for for workers. And in particular, I'm thinking of the PRO Act, right? Um, You know, if, if you start taking things apart, right, maybe you get the right to strike, but you don't get a penalty. So your employer ends up, you know, like there's a way of doing things that could be very ineffective. Um, and I will just also say that, you know, I, I would hope that in, in thinking about all of these issues, we're also thinking, you know, bigger picture, you know, even more broad reforms and how we can change overall structures to support, you know, workers' rights and collective bargaining. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Celine McNicholas, Director of Government Affairs at the Economic Policy Institute. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. As the vaccine process rolls out and the pressure increases on teachers and school staff to get back in the classroom, whether or not they've been vaccinated, I was struck by this piece at The Guardian from Michael Senato, titled, It's Been Scary, Getting Vaccinated Akin to Lottery for U.S. Teachers. He notes, quote, across the U.S., the availability of vaccines to teachers and other workers in American schools has become something of a lottery, with it being available in some areas and not in many others, even as public schools are being reopened. For many American teachers, access to the vaccine seems to depend less on what you do as a frontline educator and more on where you do it, end quote. The teachers and other school staff are prioritized in some places, not in others, and vaccine infrastructure is entirely different in different states and different parts of states, etc., etc. Sainato writes, quote, according to the American Federation of Teachers, at least 530 educators around the U.S. have died so far due to coronavirus. As of February 8th, less than 3% of Americans have been fully vaccinated from COVID-19 and less than 10% have received single doses of the vaccine. End quote. In Texas, where the state has mandated that schools be open, you know, as they're completely frozen into blocks of ice, Teachers have not been prioritized for vaccines. August Plock, a high school social studies teacher outside of Austin, Texas, told Sainato, quote, a lot of our elementary schools are getting up there to 19 to 20 students per class, and they're not effectively being able to socially distance the kids. And that's our big concern, end quote. Plock was able to be vaccinated because he is diabetic, putting him higher on the priority scale, but his colleagues haven't been so lucky. Julie Ware, a high school teacher in Delaware, was also able to get vaccinated because of a pre-existing condition, but explained to Senato, quote, My colleagues, if they're not high risk, then I honestly have no idea when they will be able to get vaccines, she said. It's been scary. I can only tell my students so many times to put on their masks correctly. I don't feel like any teacher should have ever been put in the position of having to choose between taking care of their students, but also putting their lives at risk, end quote. Another teacher, who requested to be anonymous for fear of retaliation, said, quote, We've taken to calling it the vaccine hunger games. Vaccinations have been concentrated in whiter, more affluent areas of the city, while most of the students in my school are black. 
I have never felt more disrespected or like my life was more disposable. They just don't care about us or our families, and they don't care about our students and their health either. They want us back in the classrooms so parents can go back to work and they can get the economy of the city moving again. End quote. If you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen me ranting a whole lot about this subject lately. That's because, as we have talked about many times on this show, and as I elaborate in great detail in my book, teachers are always, always blamed for the failures of broader society, which somehow they are expected to fix as it gets dismantled around them through pure love. We talked about this on last week's episode with Kenzo Shibata, and we will no doubt talk about it again. My pick for ARG is In India, Farmers Are Resisting Narendra Modi's Propaganda Machine by Ulik N.P. in The Nation. Given all the political turmoil that has engulfed the nation over the past few weeks, you might have wondered periodically whether American society is just coming undone, sinking into chaos and malignant divisiveness and unrest. But it might help to zoom out a bit and look at what's going on outside of U.S. borders for some perspective. In India, hundreds of thousands of farmers representing the rural backbone of the country, as well as one of its most impoverished workforces, are on the move, marching to Delhi and camping out there to protest a spate of agricultural reforms that many fear will further undermine the already embattled farming sector. The protests have garnered international attention, with celebrities like Rihanna and Greta Thunberg expressing support for the farmers on social media. And India now appears to be a hotbed of populist insurgency, as well as a resonant symbol of rising frustration with economic inequality and globalization. The roots of the protests are actually a common struggle for farmers around the world. Smallholders and agricultural laborers, what might have been once called a peasant class during feudal times, are facing aggressive reforms that purport to liberalize the market for farm products so that vendors would be allowed to sell at a price that is aligned with the so-called free market. Currently, farmers in India generally sell at protected prices set by the government through a mechanism known as the Agricultural Produce Market Committee, or APMC. Those government-regulated markets are a critical source of income for farmers who are typically burdened by massive debts and extremely financially precarious. The deregulated produce markets that the legislation would offer would allow large, established producers to trade without the normal licensing requirements. They'd also be exempt from certain fees. Ulik NP writes, quote, Farmers fear that, given such a choice, fewer traders would buy produce from APMCs, which will die a natural death as more and more buyers choose the tax-free new markets run by corporations. Once that happens, farmers aver, they won't get the minimum support price, and corporations will fix and manipulate prices. This will result in distressed sales, leaving farmers at the mercy of corporations, they contend. Worse, they are also worried about a provision in the new laws that prevents farmers from approaching the courts to seek redress of their grievances against corporations or even state and federal governments, unquote. In other words, massive deregulation will lead to the end of their meager livelihoods and perhaps massive displacement across rural India. Farmers here in the U.S. also struggle with their own different but also warped system of agricultural subsidies. The structure of the subsidies ends up distorting the market and, despite promising a decent floor price for family farmers, generally tips the scales towards the corporate behemoths that control our food system. Big ag is everywhere, and now they're finally coming for India's farmers. That existential crisis looms large over the surge of militant demonstrations in and around New Delhi of recent weeks. Farmers are camping out in a scene somewhat redolent of the Bonus Army and the Hoovervilles of the Great Depression era here in the U.S., except these protests are on a scale that's basically unimaginable anywhere else in the world. India is, of course, the world's largest democracy, though that reputation is currently being thrown into doubt 
A chaotic clash at the Red Fort, a famous monument in Delhi, became a pretext for the Modi administration and pro-government counter-protesters to demonize and criminalize the protesters. The authorities have smeared them as anti-government terrorists, suspended the Twitter accounts of pro-farmer advocacy groups, and suggested that some of the militant farmers are linked to Sikh separatist movements. Personally, for me, it's hard to see the storming of the monument as all that shocking after the storming of our own capital with much more bloodshed. But the storming of the Red Fort has been played up in the media as an intensely shameful event that has tarnished the reputation of the entire movement. But in the camps, NP writes, quote, the presence of large numbers of women and children, notwithstanding the physical discomforts of being away from home and in crowded surroundings in chilly weather, would be discomforting to any ruling government. Instead of engaging with these protesters, the government has now decided to restrict internet services and protest venues, which will affect the supply of necessary goods, including medicine, which is especially critical for the elderly, unquote. The curtailment of internet access is a classic Modi tactic. A year ago, the government also shut down internet access in some regions where there were protests against an extremely controversial citizenship law that was widely criticized for promoting discrimination against Muslims. As the Hindu nationalist government seeks to marginalize the protests, NP points out, quote, The farmers I spoke to believe that backing down now would not only spell catastrophe for their livelihoods, but would also set a bad precedent for future protesters and embolden what they see as a pro-rich, anti-poor federal administration and its right-wing supporters in the media. Indeed, the farmers don't see any reason to yield to a no-holds-barred effort to taint them. After all, theirs is the biggest mobilization of people in free India, unquote. Modi's propaganda war on the protesters shows that there's a common political through line running from Washington to New Delhi. Painting protesters as violent, disloyal, irrational, and or criminal is a global strategy among political elites. In the U.S., Black Lives Matter protesters were portrayed as rampantly violent, and they were vilified with racist stereotypes. Now, India's farmers are being similarly portrayed as separatist, violent, unpatriotic, and above all, not representative of the broader public, and thus not worth listening to. NP concludes, quote, with every passing year, the Modi government only seems to be perfecting its anti-dissent game plan. But this time, it's up against a hardworking, gritty group of citizens who have come together despite COVID-19, cold weather, and a callous media. Will these men of the soil succeed in outstaring Modi's massive propaganda machine? The alternative is chilling, unquote. For the farmers camped out in New Delhi, braving the elements to make sure that politicians hear them, there is no alternative. Historically, India's rural poor have been known for their extremely high suicide rates, a tragic indicator of the deep existential despair that plagues so many farming communities. Today, however, India's farmers are taking that existential dread and turning it back around on their oppressors, channeling it into a collective cry for justice that India's rulers can no longer afford to ignore. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And thanks to each and every one of our Patreon patrons. If you would like to contribute to our journalism, please find our Patreon at patreon.com. You can find the direct link on our show page at dissentmagazine.org. And you can also donate or subscribe to Dissent. With your generous donation of a few dollars a month, you can also get a cool, free, belabored-themed premium to show off to your friends and family. And if you have any comments, questions, or feedback for us, We'd love to hear from you. We want to hear from you if you are a teacher or school worker worried about Biden's plans to push schools to reopen. If you are an essential worker scrambling to get the vaccine. If you're an Amazon worker looking to start a union at your workplace. Or if you're a worker anywhere in the country hoping that the Biden administration finally raises the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. We want to hear from you. You can get us on the Twitters at 
hashtag belabored, or you can write to belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.